Amen. If you would, turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. As we continue our sermon series, looking at one body, finding our place in the church. Last week, you'll remember that we look together at Ephesians where Paul is telling us about how a man is to love his wife, but then Paul drops in this incredible nugget towards the end of that passage and says, I tell you this, this mystery describes Christ and the church. And what he means by that is that the marriage relationship, the love that a man has for a woman and, and the woman's response to her husband is to be a picture of, how, of the great love that Jesus Christ has for his church a love that is unconditional, a love that is sacrificial, a love that is caring and providing, and a love that has desires and purpose. And we talked about how if Christ loves the church that way, if Christ is so enamored with his church, and we say that we love and follow Christ, then we must love the church in kind. We shared this phrase. We said, to choose Christ is to choose his people. To choose Christ is to choose his people. You can't say that you love Jesus Christ and deny love towards the church. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. That would be to say to me, like saying to me, hey, Pastor Brian, I love you, but then to disrespect, ignore, and be cruel to my wife. Your love for me is limited at best, right, if that's the case. In the same way, if we say we love Christ, but we do not love the church, then there are, there's some disconnect. There's a problem there. In fact, 1 John tells us, if you say that you love Christ, but that you do not love your brother, then you are a liar. And so this is a big deal. It's a big deal to Christ. It should be a big deal to us as well. And so this morning, we continue down that path of what does it look like to love the church? What does it look like to have a commitment to a local body of believers, to one another? And so if you would, please stand with me as we read our text together this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 11 and going to the end of the chapter. Though certainly chapter 1, starting in verse 1, would be worthy of our reading as well. But we're going to start in verse 11 this morning. The Lord says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at, the, at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of the two, 
So making peace and might, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, have bo- have, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning, and Lord, I echo the the prayers and the thoughts of many others this morning that have already come before you, that we are thankful that we can gather. We are thankful that in your great wisdom and in your great sovereignty that you established the church, not a building, but a group of your people that you are working and molding and bonding together for the kingdom, for your glory, for our good. Father, we pray this morning that we would hear your word, that we would understand the importance of being with one another. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, we're going to do something a little bit different in that we're looking at several different aspects of this idea of commitment towards the church. We're going to start off by looking at how if we say that to love Christ is to love the church and to love the church is to make a commitment to her, then that means membership. And we're going to take a quick look, I hope, at membership in Scripture. Is that idea even biblical? And then we're going to get to our text in Ephesians chapter 2 and look at, okay, if membership, if this commitment is so vital to the Christian life and to the church, then who can be a member? Who are the members of the church? And so first, we're going to start at this, looking at this idea of membership in the Bible. I think it's important for us to look at this quickly because there are many today who would say membership is not biblical, that the church, that there is no need to have a commitment, there's no need to have a bond with a local church. And many would point to the fact that you never see the word membership in Scripture. And so this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to look through the New Testament where the church was established and look for evidence that points to the concept of membership. And what we're going to find, I believe, is that it's there. This is something that we do in another context as well. One of the core tenets of Christianity is the Trinity, the idea that God is one but is made up of three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And yet, if you were to go through Scripture, you're not going to find the word Trinity. But all over Scripture, you're going to find the evidence that points to that crucial truth to our faith. In the same way, that's that's how we're going to look at membership. We're not going to find the word. 
But we're looking for evidence that points to a crucial part of the Christian life. This commitment that's made to the local body. This commitment to a local group of believers. And so as we do some exploration in the New Testament to ask the question, is membership in the Bible? The first is to see how the early church goes about what it's doing. If you would, very quickly, turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, or sorry, Acts chapter 1, very beginning of that book. At this point in Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the grave on the third day. He has been appearing to different disciples and different individuals uh, for several days at this point. He ascends back to heaven, and now the disciples and the followers of Christ are left to figure out what's next. In verse 15, we see them gathered together. Chapter 1, verse 15, we see them gathered together. It says, In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture has to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who has become a guide to those who arrested Jesus. We're not really worried about the the content of Paul's, or sorry, Peter's message there, our focus is on that there was a number. They knew, the early church seemed to know and seemed concerned enough to record how many of them there were. They were concerned about it. We see evidence of this in another spot. Turn over just a page to chapter 2. At this point, the Holy Spirit has descended upon individual believers in what we call Pentecost, And they have gone out from the place that they were and they are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're talking about what has happened, that Jesus has died, that he rose again, and that now he he offers grace to individuals. They're speaking in different languages. And there's kind of some confusion going on. And so Peter steps forth in chapter 2 and begins to preach his first sermon, so to speak, and begins to explain and lay out for all of those listening what is happening. And through his presentation of the gospel, several come to know Christ. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 41, it says, So those who received his, Peter's word, were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Later, it's going to, verse 47, they're going to say, They added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So there seems to be, as you go through Acts, a continued concern among the church to know who they are. They want to know each other. They want to know how many of each other there are. They want to know who's following and who's not. There's a concern there. And we see this acted out in the life of the church, right? We see it that they are caring for their widows. They're not caring for every widow in Jerusalem. They're caring for the church's widows. So they seem to know who those ladies are. In fact, later in the letters of Paul, Paul's going to say, let there be a registry. There's going to be an actual role for these ladies so that they can accurately be served and helped. Of course, there comes a problem. Okay, there's some that feel that some widows are being helped more than other widows, and so they bring it to the leadership, and they say, hey, we've got an issue here. And so the elders, the apostles, gather together, and they pray about it, and they do what? They have a business meeting. 
Okay? They gather the church together and they say, here's the problem. Here is what we believe God is leading us to as a solution, which, by the way, is the creation of deacons. What do you say? And the church votes. The church says, yes, we think that is the way that the Lord would have us to go. Let's do that. And then they enact the plan. They find some guys, they anoint them, or they, they ordain them as deacons, and those guys go and serve. But they had a business meeting. How do you do that if you don't know who you are? At that point, anybody shows up, right, and votes however they want. No, they knew who they were. They knew how to gather together, and that's how they went and moved forward. So the early church knows its people in number. It knows its people in need. It knows its people in how to solve problems and how to move forward and how to do ministry. I think one of the, so that's part of the evidence that we see that there's some early things happening there in the church. But I think even more than that, later in the New Testament, we begin to see even more evidence that this is to continue to be the way that things happen. We have the issue of leadership. Please turn to Hebrews, and I realize I'm bouncing you around just a little bit here, but please turn to Hebrews chapter 13. This is the very end of Hebrews, so if you hit James, you're right there, okay? Hebrews chapter 13, we have a very interesting verse. In verse 17 and verse, uh, verse 17, Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So we have here in, at the end of Hebrews, we have the issue of leadership. Now, this goes both ways. On one end of it, we have the issue for you. It says the, the command at the beginning of the verse is that you as believers and I as a believer am to submit to the leadership of the church. Okay, who is that leadership? If Jamie Frankie were to, at First Christian, were to come out and say, you are to sell all of your vehicles, and we're going to go back to horse and buggy. Okay, Jamie would not do that. But if he were, would that be a command that you, as a member here, would listen to? Probably not, okay? You're not under his leadership. You're not under his, under his guidance, okay? The same would be true of any other pastor, okay? If you hear the guys down in Westboro who are saying that we have to protest every, everything under the sun, we don't listen to those guys because those are not your pastors. Your pastor, your elders, your spiritual guides are here in this body. And they are the ones that the writer of Hebrews says, obey and submit to. Not, not spread out. That means that there's a commitment that you've made to be at this place. And there's a commitment that you've made to one another and to the, the pastor, the shepherd that God has placed in that place. There's a commitment that is made there. But it goes the other way too. It says, obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. You want to talk about a verse that keeps me up at night, <laughs> that makes me shudder. It's this one. To know that someday that I will stand before the holy, righteous God, and I will have to give an account for the souls that I was entrusted with. 
to give an account for your soul. How did I do? How did I care for? How did I nourish? How did I lead? That's a big thing. But again, I ask you the question, who are those that I'm going to give account for? Am I going to give account for First Christian? All the folks that are there, am I to give an account for Beacon of Hope? Am I to give an account for those at Calvary Baptist? Am I to give an account for those at the Sam Church in Ansara Bay, Madagascar? Am I to give an account for the church in Rome? No. I'm to give an account for those that I was entrusted with. The ones that are here. The ones that have made a commitment to this body and that I have made a commitment to them. So through this idea of leadership, through this idea of of who we submit and obey, of this idea of who as a pastor I am to have responsibility for and give account for, we have this picture that there is a local body that are committed to one another, that love one another, that serve one another, that listen to one another for the kingdom of God. So we have, the, we have that the early church, we have the evidence of what the early church does, we have the evidence of the issue of leadership, and we have the issue of accountability. Looking at 1 Corinthians, we could also go to Matthew in this spot, but 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see something actually quite sad. Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and he is discussing with them a very serious issue. And the issue is is that there is an individual in the church that has been very publicly committing a sin that is bringing shame upon the church. And And they have not done, the church has not done anything about it. And so Paul feels obligated to write to them. And he says this in verse 9. He said, I wrote to you in my letter, so there's a previous letter to 1 Corinthians, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexual immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. So what he is saying in essence there is, he says, you need to avoid these kind of people. You need to not associate with these people, the idol worshipers, the sexual immoral. But he says, I'm not talking about worldly people. I'm not talking about people outside of the church. Because if that were true, then you would just have to like find an island that's isolated from everyone and set up a fort around it and just be you. He goes, that's not at all what I'm talking about. He says in verse 11, but now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or a reviler or drunkard or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. Okay, now this gets a little clearer. He says, When I say don't associate with an individual who is doing these things, I am not speaking of those outside of the church. I am speaking of those who claim the name Christian. Those that would say, I'm a believer, but then in a very public way live differently than that. Don't associate with those folks. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Okay, a couple of things here before we get too far into this. This is the issue of accountability. 
that you have a responsibility to me and I have a responsibility to you that when I begin to allow sin to rule in my life rather than Christ, that you as a brother or sister in Christ should come to me and say, I am concerned, I am heartbroken, I am distressed because I see you who I consider a brother or sister in Christ going the wrong way. How can I help? How can I pray for you? How can I, how can I help guide you back to the right path? How can I love on you? How can I support you? That's the idea here. It's not that we would cast stones. It's not that we would think that any of us are perfect. Certainly not. All of us have sin struggles. All of us are are in need of repentance and we're growing in our faith and we're growing in our understanding of what God desires us to do. However, there are times when individuals in the church go off the deep end, right? Something in them happens And for whatever reason, the enemy grabs hold of them and they begin to go a direction they should not go. Paul's comment on that is, if that happens and they are unrepentant, we get Jesus gives us a picture of this in Matthew as well. If they are unrepentant, they're like, I'm not doing anything wrong. Like, you just need to mind your own business. I can do whatever I want. That that is not good. And so then we would take steps towards Okay, hey, brother, no, you're really, you're really not going a good direction. How can we help you? And if they continue to refuse, Paul says, okay, at that point, they're not a member. They're not one of you. Now, the great thing is that the reason that this is done is so that they would understand the gravity of their problem, that they would understand the gravity of their sin, and that we would begin now not to just do a a membership thing where we're trying to love on a brother, but now that we would do a rescue mission, that we would go after them and say, we love you, we want you back. Like, please repent and come. It becomes a whole different thing, but we have to know who's who and what's going on. So there's this issue of accountability where clearly there are those that have made a commitment to the local body and the local body has a commitment to them. And if they choose to renounce that, then they become outside of that body. They become outside of that membership. So that's part of it as well. We have the evidence of the early church. We have the evidence of leadership. We have the evidence of accountability. And we have the evidence of the one another commands. We have the evidence of the one another commands. One another in the English is two words. But in the Greek, it's one word. The word is alalon. Alalon. One another. It occurs 100 times in the New Testament. 100 times in the New Testament, this Greek word is used, one another. 47 of those times, it's used in the form of a command. Love one another. Bear with one another. Grieve with one another. Rejoice with one another. Serve with one another. Submit to one another. Bear, like, and over and over again, right? Don't lie to one another. 47 commands. Sing with one another. Pray with one another. Grow with one another. Over and over again, we see this idea that we are meant to be in a committed communal relationship with fellow believers. And it can't be an on-again, off-again thing. It's It's a deep, meaningful relationship. All of these one another's are best expressed in the local body of believers. 
So as we look at all of this evidence, as we look at the early church, as we look at the issue of leadership and accountability, as we look at the one another commands, all of it points towards that Christ has designed us as individual believers to invest our lives in a local body where we can grow in the faith, where we can serve well, that there is clearly to be a a line of demarcation between those that are part of the church and those that are outside of it. If that is the case, if we see all this evidence mounting towards this one conclusion, then one of the questions that we must ask in response is who is a member? Who is a member? All right, go back with me to Ephesians 2, that passage that we started with. Who is a member? Who is part of the body, part of the family, part of the building? Whichever analogy of Paul's you would like to use in describing the church. Who is a part of that? Paul gives us some clues here in Ephesians chapter 2. Starting with verse 11, once again, let's read this part again. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Okay, so Paul starts off chapter 11 by saying, at one time there was a divide. And the divide was the people of God and those that were not the people of God. This has been true since the beginning. But in the Old Testament, that divide was largely marked by ethnic things, by national descriptions. There were the Jews and the not Jews. It was marked by a fleshly marker, something that you did to your physical body, namely circumcision. Or your relatives mark their bodies in that way. That That was the line. That was the symbol, the sign of who belonged to God and who did not. And he says that when this was the case, for those that were Gentiles, those that were not Jews, they were far off from God. He says, you had no hope, no hope with no God in this world. Praise the Lord, he says in verse 13, but now, but now, he says that it's changed. There's been a a shift that's happened that no longer is that the, the ethnic national ideas no longer are those the kind of the defining marks of who is and who isn't, but now there's something completely different. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, (coughs) who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Paul says, who is a member? Who is part of the body? It is those that have been brought in by Christ. This is the starting point that Jesus has come and he lived a perfect life, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he rose on the third day victorious over death 
and over sin. And now he extends to us the gift of peace with God. And all those who accept it are now his. There is no longer Gentile or Jew, nor slave, nor free. There's, now we are all one in Christ. We are brought in by the blood of Christ through faith and his grace. It's an amazing thing that he has done. And it's the starting point of membership. When we have someone come and they say, I want to be a member, I want to put my life here, the first question that we ask is, have you been saved? Have you been saved? Tell me the story of what God has done in your life. Do we understand? Do we understand our need for salvation? Do we understand our own sin? Do we understand our need for a Savior to rescue us? Do we understand that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, did just that? Do you understand the cross and the resurrection as best as we can? Do you understand forgiveness of sin? And that you have you made him Lord? Are you saved? Now there, and there are times that we have those conversations and we realize that the individual is not quite there yet. They're seeking, they're wanting it, but they just don't understand it. We see this most commonly in small children, right? There, I get plenty of requests from, from small children, including occasionally my daughter, who's like, I want to get baptized, okay? And that's good. I, I love that. I, I want them to see that and know that it's important. But when you get to talking to them, especially three, four-year-olds, you realize that some of the reason they want to get baptized is they just like the idea of getting wet right? They just want to get in the bathtub. They want to go under the water. And as you talk to them, you go, okay, you're, you're not understanding. You're not understanding what salvation is. You're not understanding the depth of what has happened there. And that's okay. They're three and four years old, okay? That's all right. We all come to that realization, that understanding at different times in life. And so we say, hey, we're going to wait. We're going to continue to talk. We're going to continue to pray. We're going to continue to love on you. But we're just going to wait on that part. You're not quite ready to be a member yet. You're not quite ready to go through baptism. You don't quite understand. You've not really had a salvation experience or an understanding of even what that looks like. And that's okay. We want to continue to walk with you. We want to continue to talk and pray and do all those things that I just mentioned. But that's our first question. Okay, that is, that is the first step. Are you, if you're going to call yourself a member, if you want to be a member, have you been saved? The second one is bonded by the Spirit. Going back to our text here, going back to his word, in verse 18, it says, For through him, Jesus, we have access in one Spirit to the Father. And then going down to verse 22, the end of the passage, In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We see here and in other places, Paul described the work of the Holy Spirit, this gift that we as believers are given to the bonding together of the church. That the Holy Spirit is leading us as individuals in our following of Christ. But he is also pulling us closer to the church. That we're growing in our understanding and our need for a relationship with him. But also growing in our understanding of our need for a relationship with brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we ask the question, have you been saved? We also ask the question, are you being led by the Spirit? 
Does the Spirit reside in you? Now, we know that these two things go together. That the Spirit resides in us at when we are saved. That he, is, he gives it to us. It's not the way it exactly was in Acts where there was a period of waiting time, okay? But we understand now as we look on this side of everything that when we come and put our faith in Jesus Christ that he gives us this incredible gift of the Spirit of God that dwells with us, that leads us. So we ask, are you being led by the Spirit? Are you actively allowing him to guide and direct your path and the decisions that you're making in life? Are you allowing him to be the Lord that you have claimed him to be? And on top of that, are you being led by the Spirit to this church? Do you understand the commitment that you're making? That there is a covenant that happens between an individual and the people of God. That the individual commits to serve and to submit. The individual commits to care for and to sacrifice for the church. And in the same way, we as a church commit to that individual to love and to care for, to watch out for, to hold accountable, to encourage, to grieve with them, to rejoice with them, all of these things. Do we have a desire for those things and do we understand our need for that? Third thing that we see in Ephesians 2 is we see that we're built up, the member is being built up by the church. Go to verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we get this wonderful picture. Paul says that if you are a member, you're one that has been saved, that you've been brought in by the blood of Christ, that you've been united to one another, that you're being led by the Holy Spirit and directed in your life, but also that you're being pulled together with other believers to live life with them, and you're being built up by the truth. Your faith is not stagnant. That slowly but surely, you're understanding. Again, we're not claiming to be perfect. We're not claiming that any of us ever on this side of heaven fully understand all of our faith or all of Scripture or that we live this life perfectly as he would have us. Certainly not. But we have a growing and increasing desire to follow him. And it's built, it's built upon the apostles, the prophets, and Christ Jesus, the cornerstone. Why does he say it that way? Because he's pointing to all of Scripture. It's the apostles. It's the New Testament. It's what the, the church is teaching here in these words, in these letters. Is your life marked by trying to understand these things better in the New Testament? But we don't get to just toss the Old Testament out. He says that it's being built on the apostles and the prophets. The Old Testament matters as well. Are you, are you looking at the whole Word of God? that you may understand it well, that it may speak to your life. And then, of course, as the cornerstone, are you looking to Christ? Is your life built upon these things? This is the mark. This is the description of a good member, one who has been brought in by Christ, one who is being led by the Holy Spirit and bonded together with other believers and one that is growing in their faith. It's interesting. None of those things, none of those things happens well outside of the church. All of those things 
happen best inside of a local body, inside of a committed relationship. It's interesting to me, as he's describing these things, that he says that we that he might create in himself, going back up to verse 15, if you want to follow along. He says that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. Going down to 22, he says that we are being built together as a dwelling place of, for God by the Spirit. In particular, that idea of, being, of two people becoming one, he's describing their Gentiles and Jews. That God has taken Gentiles and Jews, two very different people, two very different backgrounds, two very different cultures, and he is bringing them together to make them one body, one new thing, one flesh. Where else do we hear that term? It's in the picture of what God does in a woman and a man, right? That he takes two people, two individuals, and God brings them together and he unites them in one flesh. Just as he unites Christ and the church in one flesh. All of these things, all of these pictures coming together in one, one beautiful understanding that we have been made to come together. We've been made to come together. It's interesting here. Paul starts, Paul starts this passage by talking about, Paul starts this passage by talking about circumcision. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, that sign that we talked about of this is who the people of God is and this is who the people of God are not, this understanding of, of circumcision taking place that it might be a marker for who is in and who is out. No longer do we carry through that. No longer do we have the, the shedding of blood by human hands to mark who is and who is not in Scripture. Now we have this beautiful ordinance of baptism. Now baptism is our introduction to the church. We got to see this last week uh, as Brian came forward and shared his testimony of, of wanting to be baptized and, and putting things in the right order. But it's, it's a reminder that baptism, this ordinance that we've been given, is meant to be an, not only a testimony to others. It's not only a testimony to others to say, hey, this is what Christ has done in my life. This is a difference. But when it's done rightly in the context of a local body of believers, it is also a communication to that individual. I work on behalf of the church to say, we see Christ in you. And so we baptize you into our community because we see and recognize what Christ has done in your life. Baptism is a recognition of what Christ has done in the life of an individual. And it is the bonding together of that individual and a church. The individual says, I proclaim Christ. And the church says, we recognize you. That's why baptism is important. That's why we do it in the context of a local church. Now, there may be a few that point, and they say, well, what about the eunuch? Okay, remember Philip and the eunuch? The eunuch says, what, what keeps me from being baptized right here and Philip baptizing right there? What's the difference there? There was no church in Ethiopia. <laughs> like, he couldn't send him back and say, hey, go find your local pastor and have him baptized. He couldn't do that. There are cases in rare circumstances where there are no church, and that person is baptized into the universal church that they may start their own. 
<laughs> that they might find their own group of local believers and bond together. But by and large, this thing that we do, this wonderful thing of baptism we do so that we may communicate to one another, I have put my trust in him. And for the church to say, we believe you and you're one of ours. For there to be a mutual commitment to one another. A bond that should not be broken lightly. It's why we take it seriously that we're here together with one another. It's why we take membership seriously. It's why we take the role seriously. It's why if you move to another place, God, I pray that he doesn't, but if God moves you to a different location for whatever reason as he leads, that you would take it seriously to find a local body there and to communicate to us, hey, I'm with them. Okay, if you've been a Baptist long, you've heard this thing of a letter, okay, and you move your letter of membership, you understand what's going on there? It's a local body of believers. It's us or another church telling another church, hey, we see Christ in them. We, and we believe in them and we've supported them and we've loved on them and they have served here well. And now we recognize that God has moved them and we give our blessing. We give our blessing for them to be at your place or vice versa. We take those letters mean something. It's not just simply paperwork. It's a recognition that this person is one of us in a beautiful family that God has put together. My prayer is, is that as we understand these things, as we understand the, the biblical concept of, of membership and the things that go along with that, as we understand its importance, as we understand who is a member and who is not, a couple of things would come to mind. First, that we would ask the question, am I truly a member? Am I a member? Have I been saved? Am I being led by the Holy Spirit? Am I growing in my faith? Again, not measuring myself up against anybody else, not trying to be perfect before I join, none of that. Just are these things growing in me? We don't expect a, we don't expect a baby tree to produce fruit right away. Okay, there's growth, there's maturity that has to happen. In the same way, a believer, we don't expect perfection. We don't expect you to have it all together. Okay, we're all broken. We all have things that, that are in our past. We invite you to come and, and to grow here, to make a commitment here that we may love on you well. Are you a member? Have you, have you done those things? Have you asked him into your life? Are you following him? Are you growing in him? Second, are you being a good member to others? We're going to get into more of this in the coming weeks, but are you loving each other well? Are we supporting each other well? We may become that body that is being built together layer by layer for the glory of God. And then lastly, my prayer is too that as we understand these things that we would have a heart for those that aren't with us. There are lots of folks on our, our role who we haven't seen in a long time that we would understand that it is in their best interest. It is in their best interest of their faith and of their salvation for them to be back in a local body. And that we would say, hey, let's go get those people. I know, I know that individual. I know that individual. 
I need to be loving on them. I need, I need to start a rescue mission for them. That they would be back in the fold, so to speak. That they would be back in the family. That they would be home here. Pray that those things are building in us as we desire more and more, not only his guidance, but each other. I'm going to ask the praise team to come back up, and we're just going to have a time of response this morning. Again, maybe your response is, I've never, I've never asked Jesus Christ to save me. I've never had that personal relationship with him, but I want that. And you would pray to him, Lord, save me. Forgive me of my sins. Be my leader. Maybe this morning you need to say, you know what? I, I, I understand that there's more to this membership thing. There's a commitment that needs to be made. There's a, there's a depth to it and that you would say, Lord, help me, to, help me to have a heart for that, a fire for that, a desire for those things. Maybe this morning again, you would say, man, there's, there's somebody I know that I need to go get. And you would pray for them this morning. Father, give me the opportunity to talk to them. Father, move in their hearts to be a part of the, the church. May these things be true of us. Let me pray. Father, we come before you and Father, we thank you again for the opportunity to come into this place and to, to look at your word and to understand something that, that may come, come off very technical or that may, may come off as something that we see as, as just paperwork. But Lord, that is not your intention. Lord, that you see the, the commitment to your body as, as an important part of being a Christian, an important part of being a a daughter or a son of, of the king, that we would be united with a family who loves on us well, who encourages us well, who watches over us, a family where we can serve and do the same for others. Father, I pray for this family here. Lord, as you continue in these next couple of weeks to, to guide us and to help us to, to follow you in this, in, in this wonderful gift that you've given of the church, that we would just grow deeper and deeper in love with you and with, with the church, with each other. That we be unified. That we would serve well with one another. That we would do all of these things that, that the community of Vandalia would look at First Baptist Church and they would go, there's something different there. there there's a family connection there. There's a, there's a unity there. There's, there's things happening there that, that don't just normally happen. And that you would be glorified because of it. And we would see lives changed. Because of it. Father, we pray all of this in the beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.